Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. So I'm, I'm quite humbled considering that, you know, I came to the U.S. with $500 in my pocket, <laughs> not knowing what my future would look like. But it was because a person, Wayne, took interest in me and said, you should get your CPA. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. That clip was from our guest this week, Sheila Enriquez of Briggs Veselka. Sheila came referred to us by one of our former guests, and as soon as we started talking, I understood why. Sheila is definitely passionate about the accounting profession, but not just the profession per se, really the future of the profession and all the opportunities that are available to us out there. She's in line to be managing partner of her firm there in Houston, a rather large firm, I might say, in the next couple years. Part of her work involves forensic accounting. She has a law degree, and as if that wasn't enough to pique her interest, she originally came to the U.S. from the Philippines, and accounting, believe it or not, was the major for her second bachelor's degree. She actually started out with a bachelor's in management. This is a wonderful story of the importance of mentors in your life and and really just being willing to work towards a worthwhile goal. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Please don't forget to visit us online as well for the complete show notes and links to some of the items that Sheila references. That website is www.whereaccountantsgo.com. That's whereaccountantsgo.com. Without further ado, let's get started. Here's Sheila Enriquez of Briggs Veselka. Well, hello, Sheila. Thank you so much for making the time to record this for our listeners. Lisa Ong, actually one of our previous guests, suggested you to us, and I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, thank you, Mark. I am too. I'm quite excited to talk to you today. Wonderful. Well, you have a unique background, at least for our guests so far. We've had audit partners on the show before, and I know, of course, there are attorneys that work in accounting, but usually we see those in the tax field. I'm really curious to hear how your story and your career has progressed over the years to see what our audience can glean from that story for their own careers, so to speak. And also, I noticed you've worked in forensic accounting, and we we did a two-part series on forensic accounting, and those honestly were some of our most popular episodes. So there's going to be a lot of pluses for the audience. Yeah, Um, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that, Tia, because I'm happy to share my background. Wonderful. Yes, I'm looking forward to getting into that. Let's start at the beginning, though, like we usually do. What caused you to decide to pursue accounting as a career in the first place? So I've got a unique story even from the very beginning. It really, what I would call it serendipity is, is what happened, how I got into accounting. So I came to the United States as a student on a student visa in 1992. And at the time, I was 
I was actually in a business program for an associate business, and then I ended up getting a scholarship after that to go to a four-year college in New York, Mercy College. And in the process of um, finishing up my management degree, I had one elective, a three-credit elective that I needed to fill for my last semester. And so I decided to go to the dean of the graduate program for Long Island University, which was actually in the same campus, to see if I can actually get that course as opposed to just a regular undergraduate course. And so I was very fortunate because the day that I set up a meeting, the day that I actually dropped in, the dean of the graduate program was there. And I proceeded to ask him, and his name is Wayne Shafari. He ended up being really my guiding mentor, and he still is to this day. He's retired, but I still talk to him whenever I have decisions to make about my career. He's just been a wonderful mentor. And so at that time, I had said to him, is it possible to get the quantitative analysis instead of of like an undergraduate degree? And, And we had what we call the blue sheet that has all of the grades for your courses, and he looks at that, and then he looks at me, and then he says, do you want to work for me as a graduate assistant for 20 hours a week, and I'll, I'll give you, you know, full scholarship, because he, he doesn't hire secretaries. He uses students, and I thought, okay, this is like out of the blue, and I said, of course, <laughs> like right on the spot. I said, you know, because this is a point in time when I didn't know what I was going to do after graduation. I would have had to go back to the Philippines unless I found an employer to sponsor me. And so this is an opportunity to continue my education and still have a scholarship. But in the conversation, he did tell me, because I was graduating with a management degree in that spring, in May, and he said to me, you know, you really should consider going back and taking accounting classes and getting your CPA because you're a woman and you're a minority, and, and you're doing well in your school, because at this point I had you know, straight A grades. And so um, I never even thought about accounting. I mean, I took it. I took it as a class as part of the business administration program, but never occurred to me that I should pursue a CPA. And through that, he was able to actually, at the time, LIU, Long Island University and Mercy College had what they called a four plus one program. It was a CPA MBA program that was a five-year, they were kind of ahead of the curve, so to speak, because this was in 1994, I believe. It was a four plus one program. So I was actually able to pursue MBA classes the same time that I was then making up for the accounting classes, intermediate, intermediate two, and all of the advanced accounting classes while getting my MBA as well. So it just worked out so well where it wasn't even really planned. And my first accounting class after that conversation, it was just something that came naturally to me. I didn't struggle with it. I understood it, you know, and so I did quite well. And so that's how I ended up. And so after I graduated, immediately took the CPA exam in November and then found out I passed all four that following February. This was in 1996, 97 timeframe. So, so yeah, so um, it was by accident, and that, that's probably one of the advice that I would just tell the audience is that always be open to opportunities that come your way, because you just don't know where it's going to come from. This was completely out of the blue, and, and somehow there was that feeling in me that says, take it, take it, and it just changed my whole life. Interesting. 
And it sounds like you were one of the last years, so to speak, that were allowed to take the CPA exam all at once. Was that still yeah? The paper um, that was in the, that was a paper exam. I'll never forget <laughs> it. I took it in Albany. <laughs> it was in this big, big, big auditorium. We had the you know those seats that were the elementary school seats, you know, with that extended like that little writing space. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it was, but you know what? I, I'm glad, I'm really glad that I did it and I took it that way because it literally was just a concerted effort to study. I knew that I didn't want to just be studying and studying again and again, so I just made an effort to say I'll put the time in and then I'll hopefully pass it the first time, you know, as opposed to worrying about taking one and then taking another and then taking another, you know. Now, of course, it, there's pros and cons to both, but I was glad <laughs> that was how it was then. <laughs> so what was your first job after getting your MBA? My first job, actually, was while working. So um, while oh. I was working for, for Wayne and, you know, 20 hours a week during that time frame, I was also working for a different company visiting their services of White Plains where it was an HR function. And I was doing that before even agreeing to work for Wayne as a graduate assistant. That was on a part-time basis. But then what happened was when I shifted to accounting, Wayne graciously introduced me to a friend of his, John Tortolani, who owned a consulting firm. And what they did was a fractional consulting for nonprofits. So what they did was fractional CFO, accounting, risk management consulting. But their primary clients were Catholic religious congregations, so like Sisters of Mercy and, you know, Dominican Sisters. And so that was my first, what I would consider my first job in accounting, because it was actually working with the accounting departments of the different congregations, kind of helping with their budgeting, their forecasting, and then interfacing with investment companies in monitoring investment performance. It was a great experience, and I ended up working for them. They sponsored me for my working visa after I graduated, so I worked for them for a couple of years. They were not a CPA firm, and so even though I had passed the exam, I couldn't get my license in New York because you needed to have audit hours, and I ended up moving to a different, to a CPA firm when I had moved to Rhode Island because I was transferred. Brenner McDonough and Tortolani had a location in Rhode Island and one of the partners there at McDonough was going to retire. And so he needed somebody to help take over his clients. And my husband, who wasn't my husband at the time, again, we were from the Philippines. We had no roots in New York. It was getting really expensive. We thought, you know, move to Rhode Island is a is a good thing for us, you know, to be able to start a family and not worry about not being able to buy a house. And so um, long story short, I did end up leaving that firm to get my 500 audit hours to get licensed in Rhode Island and ended up joining a small firm in Rhode Island called Sparrow Johnson and Ursillo. And that was my first foray into a CPA firm. Okay. Just to make sure I understand this correctly. So outside of working for Wayne part-time and the part-time HR job, your first official accounting position was as a fractional CFO. Yes, a fractional accountant <laughs> CFO. <laughs> I'm telling you, wow. it's like it's like all serendipity, right? It's like everything just falling into place. And, and I remember that interview shaking in my boots, you know, kind of, because I didn't have any experience, but they liked that I had 
already, I was doing really well in my accounting classes. And, and actually, one of the questions that Bob, one of the partners, Moody, Bob Moody at that firm, when he looked at my GPA, because, you know, my resume said, you know, 4.0 GPA, he's like, so how many credits is that? Because <laughs> I think he was thinking 4.0 because you have 12 credits. And I said to him, well, you know, at this point, I'm actually close to about 150 credits. <laughs> Because, you know, because I was, I was sort of gra- close to kind of finishing up, you know, and he, was, he started laughing. But, but yeah, it, it was a great experience because I did get, I got to do a variety of things. So that when I went to the public accounting firm, I think that's why I gravitate towards consulting too, because that was my initial job. And being able to work with auditors on the other side, but understanding the day-to-day functions and understanding the things that clients deal with outside of the audit. It really helped me when I ended up moving to public accounting. Okay, wonderful. So how did you end up in Texas, and how did the law degree happen? Okay, so um, (laughs) remember when I said earlier to the audience, please make sure you're open to emergent possibilities? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll start with the law with the law degree just because that from a chronological standpoint, you know, we moved to Texas in 2006 and I started law school in 2004, I believe. Now that I think about it, I think it was like fall of 2004. So the law degree was not really something that I had necessarily wanted to pursue from the outset. It was just an interest of mine, you know, I of, of the four parts of the CPA exam, I did really, really well in law. And I remember business law one and two, the professor came to me after the course was over and when we took business law one. And he just said that there was, you know, I understood it. You know, it was a natural, sort of like a natural thing for me. And I just loved it. And so I had an opportunity to attend Roger Williams University in Rhode Island where they had an evening program, but they were discontinuing it because they were going to make it a full-time curriculum where it's a three-year program as opposed to a part-time program where it's a four-year. And so it was my last opportunity if I wanted to do it. And so I I took the LSAT, applied, and ended up getting a scholarship. And so in the process of doing that, and at the time, this is a bit of a long story, I had my son the year before. So my, my oldest one was a year old. And I get this opportunity to attend this school in the evenings, for free, and I was working as a manager at Spar Johnson and Ursillo. And I remember talking to my husband, because you know, it's one thing to apply, but it's another to actually now have to do it. <laughs> and I remember saying to him, I don't think I can do this. You know, how am I going to do this? Working full time, taking care of Anthony, you know, and then going to school. And my husband, who is amazing, by the way, that's the other recipe that <laughs> is needed is your support. He just really encouraged me. He said, what's the what's the worst thing that can happen? So you don't like it. You don't lose anything because I had a scholarship. And he was, he was right because ultimately when I went to the first class, it was one of those moments when I knew I was in the right place. I understood it. I loved it. I loved every moment of it. It was a long process because we moved to Texas and I had to transfer to University of Houston Law, you know, and I had to obviously attend the classes in the evenings while working full time. But what I found was the work that I did during the day helped me do a better job understanding the concepts and vice versa. 
So I didn't really see it as two different things because the critical skills that attorneys have, it's really the same as what CPAs have, if you think about it, right? Whether you're in audit or you're in tax, you are looking at rules and applying them to facts. And that's law. So it just sort of clicked with me and it didn't matter what class I took. I really enjoyed it. So it wasn't work. At the end of the day, you know, even passing the bar exam and all of that, that was just something that I felt compelled to do, not because I had to do it, but because I wanted to do it. Interesting. Okay. I was curious if that's how you ended up in forensics or if if that's... Yes, yes, actually, (laughs) that's how I ended up. And so uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier that I was, I gravitated towards consulting. So the firm that I worked at in Rhode Island, Spar Johnson and Yersillo, it's not a big firm at all, but I got to do everything. So I did the audit and then I would do the tax and I would do the tax for the corporation and then I would do the tax for the owners and then I would do it for their kids. And then in the summer, we did all sorts of consulting. And there were a couple of people that were doing forensics and some that were doing ABL bank audits, which I also got to do. And so it was a very forward-thinking firm, even from a technology side. You know, I remember they let me implement going paperless. This is very, very early on in the 90s. And so, um, so that's really gave, that gave me some exposure to forensic accounting. So when I decided to not leave public accounting for law, because at some point you know, in my career, I felt like I've pretty much been on the right track to make partner. I didn't see myself starting as an associate, as an attorney. I felt like really the best thing for me to do with my audit background and consulting background is to go with the forensics and expert work, litigation support work. And I'm passionate about that area for that reason, because it's, an, it's a way for me to still be in the law, even though I'm not officially practicing and interfacing with lawyers, you know, and a perfect example of that, a story like yesterday, I I was in a deposition. I was deposed in the case and I was in my element because I kind of understood what they were looking for because I did go to law school, took pretrial litigation. So that training helps me in understanding how to respond, what are they looking for? But then more importantly, after that, having a meeting with the attorneys talking about the case maybe interpreting a contract, maybe coming up with the damages, I'm really able to help them using the same language. And I think that's really the the differentiator, you know, when I'm practicing in the forensics area, I've got great relationships and I thoroughly enjoy being in the courtroom, working with the attorneys, because I'm sort of vicariously living through them, (laughs) even (laughs) though I'm not practicing. And I do pro bono work, but I don't do any kind of paid legal work. So it's my way of staying within the legal realm without necessarily practicing. And it's still the same skill set that I have as an auditor because I'm still primarily an audit partner here at the firm. Interesting. That, that's interesting. You found a way to mix both. You enjoy right, but but, I, but, you, but like you said, people get confused because when they hear that I'm an attorney as well, they assume automatically that I'm in tax <laughs> because that's yeah. the natural thing. You know, like when you look at JDCPAs, they're practicing tax in that department, in that area. And so I have to explain to them that, no, I'm actually an auditor at heart, and therefore, <laughs> you know, I do more of the litigation support and forensics. Interesting. Now, Lisa mentioned, I guess, tell us about your firm now, because Lisa mentioned something about the, the possibility that 
be managing partners in your future and maybe a transition period. And, and so I don't know any of the details behind that. So where do you work now? And Yeah, um, for sure. Um, I'm, I'm very happy. It's another area I'm so passionate about. The firm that I'm working at right now is called Briggs & Veselka. We are the largest independent firm here in Houston with over 200 people. And so we're a full-service accounting firm. We do everything from tax, audit, huge consulting practice around areas such as what we just talked about, forensics, valuation, litigation support, transaction advisory services, you know, internal audit. And then we, we also have um, specialties within our tax and audit group. And so we... Um, have really experienced tremendous growth. So I've been with the firm 10 years. So let me start for when I came to Texas. So you had asked earlier what caused us to come to Texas. The primary reason was really to be closer to my husband's best friend, who after college, he was one of the 10 students that came with us to the United States in 1992. So we ended up moving here to be closer to them, to get some support because my husband and I didn't have any family in Rhode Island, you know, and at the time I was going to law school and my son was, I believe, three by the time we were, we moved to Houston. And so just because of the cost of living and also just opportunities, we felt like this would be a good move for us, sell our house there, cash out, and then have a little bit more flexibility when we move here. And so I was fortunate, very, very fortunate that I found Briggs & Veselka because at this point, if you recall, I was still still determined to finish my law degree, which meant I needed to find a firm that can provide me flexibility, that can give me that ability to be able to still work full-time but then allow me to work and go to school at night during the evenings that I have to go to law school. And so they were true to their word because when I was talking to the recruiter that helped me find a job, and at this point, this was in 2006, when it was almost like a peak recruiting season, right, for CPAs in Houston. There was a big shortage of CPAs. And I wasn't even planning on working because we felt, okay, maybe I'll just go to law school full-time and then practice law after that. But the recruiter that was helping my husband find a job said to him, what does your wife do? (laughs) And he says, well, you know, she's a manager at a CPA firm. And she immediately latched on that and said, I need to talk to her. (laughs) And her name is Jacqueline, and I still talk to her. But she was the one that um, helped me kind of find Briggs. And so I really have been fortunate to find a firm that was true to its word in giving me the flexibility and still keeping me on that path of upward progress. Because that was the one thing that I wanted to make sure of is that it's not going to keep me from getting to the next level in terms of being able to, as long as I did the work, right, as long as I met the expectations for a manager, and they did, you know, they delivered on that, they let me go to school, they let me work from home because we, we had the technology to do it. And the one thing, too, that was, I consider it fortuitous, it was at a point in time when the leadership of the firm recognized that there was a need to develop succession. There was a need to develop a pipeline of younger leaders for them to stay independent. Because I think what's forcing firms to merge up is largely because of lack of successors, lack of people that can continue the practice. And so when I came to Briggs, that was foremost in their plan is to identify future leaders. And, And so I remember my first week in the firm, and this is someone that 
that has never done business development before joining the firm. It wasn't even something I thought I wanted to do. But the managing partner, John Fladowitz, and actually he wasn't the managing partner at the time. He was the audit chair. He actually said to me, I have a prospect call. Come join me. And I was like, they're in the headlights. You know, okay, what does that mean? But it turned out to be a great experience because in that process, I learned that business development is really about listening. It's really about problem solving. It's really about helping the client be able to solve their issues. And, and for the most part, all we did was ask questions, listen to them, and it's also building the relationship. And, and we actually ended up winning that client. And that was awesome for me. That was such an awesome experience because I, I became more confident in really being able to say to myself, you can do this because this is just, this is what I want to do anyway. It's building relationships with clients, providing good client service, training staff. And so all of those things... I think really helped me grow within the firm because they were very open to suggestions. They were very open to ideas and how to improve how we do things. I remember being involved in implementing formalized training, formalized mentoring, which is a passion of mine. I really, there's something about being able to develop people and see them grow. that's just very satisfying. And so that really, to me, was the sign that I, I was in the right place. And so I've been with the firm 10 years, started as a manager. I made it to partner in, I believe it was 2010. So I started in 2007, made it to partner in 2010. And then a couple of years later, I was actually elected to be on the executive committee. And then a couple of months ago, I was elected to be the managing shareholder elect. So I'll be transitioning into that role. We're in the middle of the transition, but it's effective October 1, 2019. So I'm, I'm quite humbled considering that, you know, I came to the U.S. with $500 in my pocket, <laughs> not knowing what my future would look like. But it was because a person, Wayne, took interest in me and said, you should get your CPA. And I, attri- I really, really attribute what I've accomplished largely in, in getting my credential as a CPA. That's why I'm passionate about talking about the CPA license. Wow. And you're, you're very involved in the profession as well. You were mentioning some involvement with TSCPA, I believe. Is that? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I actually, and, and he, this is another thing that Briggs gets right. Our firm is, our core purpose really is to foster excellence, inspire confidence, and make a difference. So that means that even in our community, in our profession, the firm supports our activities as employees. And, and really, our biggest biggest thing is discovering the best in ourselves and others. And so they encouraged me to participate in the profession. Johnny Veselka, who is the founding partner of the firm, and he's retired now, but he was very active in the profession, whether it's at the local level or at the state level. And so when he actually was about to retire... He had encouraged me to participate in the public relations committee for the Houston CPA Society in order to get involved. And that was the beginning for me, and I never looked back. So I'm actually the current president of the Houston CPA Society, and I'm on the board of the TSCPA, and I'm also on the governing council for the AICPA. And so um, I'm passionate about it because I feel like I really owe it to give back and pay it forward because this profession has just been incredibly good to me. And really, it's, those are wonderful organizations to learn leadership skills and to network with like-minded individuals that may be similarly situated, 
it's just a great resource overall for me. And so I, I really love being involved in those organizations. Mm-hmm. Well, not that you would have time for it, it sounds like, but are there any other, I guess, non-accounting related organizations that you participate with on the board or leading efforts or committees or anything like that? Yes, yeah, actually I've got one. Um, I just want to kind of have a shout out to the Houston Public Media. Houston Public Media is a news organization here in Houston affiliated with PBS and I'm on the foundation board and I'm also very passionate about Houston Public Media because of their educational efforts. Sesame Street, as you know, is is something that we all know is is a wonderful resource for kids and I really like their mission. And I'm very engaged in, in what they do as well. They're involved in arts and news also. But the one area that I'm very much focused in is the education part of the, of the organization. You are busy. <laughs> I am. <laughs> and sometimes I do wonder <laughs> when I look back, at, you know, I look back at everything. And, and, and even conversations such as this, Mark, it just reminds me of how grateful I am for all the opportunities along the way because I could not have done this without people that recognized something in me, gave me the opportunities, opened doors for me. This opportunity to talk to you, I feel, is a way for me to reach students, hopefully, that are undecided about getting their CPA license, and I just want to encourage them to really look into it because it is worth it. It is something you'll always have forever, something you can be proud of, and something that will differentiate you. Yes, yes. Thank you. Well, I I know you have a hard stop coming up, and I'm watching the time here, and I want to make sure we get down to the final three questions I ask every guest. But before we hit that, one more on this topic. Since you are in the succession line there at Briggs Veselka, what, if anything, are your thoughts on, I guess, challenges that need to be addressed in the profession, or or what are your hopes for the profession or, or your firm as you guys continue to grow? I think that's a great question, and and I mentioned earlier that I'm very much involved with the local, state, and national levels, you know, with the Mm -hmm. different CPA societies, and one thing I'm most grateful about my involvement is the opportunity to have a front seat view of what's happening in the profession, and the theme, as you most likely know, is really change and disruption. Our profession is in the throes of rapid transformational change brought on by technology. And I really see that, though, as an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to do what we're really good at, and that's really being a trusted advisor. I think what technology does is that it will help us eliminate some of the grunt work that we're doing now because we have to and would allow us to really step above a level where it's more of an interface relationship with the client and understanding their business and being really true business advisors. And so I see it as an opportunity. Now, what are the challenges? Obviously, we have to recognize that that is happening and we have to do something about it and we have to invest in new technology, new training. We have to unlearn to some extent what we've learned, especially for us that have been in the profession for decades and relearn those new things. And then too, we have to understand that it's a very different environment in terms of staffing. We have three generations in the workforce right now, and it's going to be four before long. The boomers, the generation X, and then you've got your um, millennials, and now you've got your Gen Zs coming right behind them. And so I think understanding 
those differences and how people are motivated in terms of how they work is going to be very challenging. But uh, there again, I think at the core of it, at the crux of it, we all, no matter what generation, we are all looking for that higher purpose, right? It's always that, what can we do where we can leave a legacy? And so I think with that common purpose, it's just really understanding each other and kind of how can we maximize each generation's contribution and understanding sort of that is that empathy part of putting yourself in the other person's shoes. And so, but that will be a challenge, I think. I think staff expectations will be a challenge as well. The old traditional accounting firm that I grew up in where I would come in and I would be expected to sit at my desk because the partner is still there, that's no longer going to fly because now you've got a different generation that's wanting to work anywhere where they can be effective as long as the work is done. And then also hours. What are the expectations with hours? Not to mention the fact that our clients then would also be becoming younger, right? So their expectations are going to be different as well. And then I think at the crux of it, it's also building a pipeline of CPAs. I understand from the AICPA that there is a concern with some of the accountants not taking the CPA exam. I mean, I realize that we also have that higher requirement of having the 150 credits. Is that keeping accountants from not sitting for the CPA exam? I know for the Houston CPA Society, we every year have a scholarship gala where we raise funds for fifth-year accounting students and K-12 students. So um, profession, I think, is aware of it and is doing something to get the word out. I believe we have to start even sooner than college. We have to get them when they're maybe middle school even because you have to kind of get their interests early. There is this notion out there that accountants are boring. We're not. <laughs> we're quite interesting. We know how to have fun. We're, we're people facing. You know, we're not just in a desk somewhere, in a corner somewhere. I mean, we, we have an interesting profession that people can actually explore and have different opportunities. I mean, you, you talked about forensics. It's an exciting area that's continuing to evolve. We're now getting into cybersecurity and being able to provide services around cybersecurity. It's very relevant. So, so I think we just have to get the word out, do a better job of communicating why it is a good option for them. Now, for my hopes for the firm, and, and I'm very, very happy that my firm is really a, a forward-thinking firm because I mentioned to you earlier we're the largest independent firm. And in the 10 years that I've been with the firm, we have grown double digits every year. Wow. And, and even before that, you know, we started at, in 1973 with three people. And, you know, we're at 220, I think, at last count. And, and that growth was really propelled by us expanding into niche areas outside of the traditional audit and tax. It's understanding that we need to really get into more of the advisory services and operating specialty areas. And so my vision for the firm is that we continue to grow and not just be the largest independent firm in Houston, but really in all of Texas. We want to get into the different major cities. That way we can provide that continuous growth that will help give our staff opportunities for growth within the firm as well. And my vision is that in 10 years, we would be that, the largest independent firm in Texas. We would have developed a pipeline of leaders. Succession was an issue when I first started with the firm. I'm very focused on helping develop that pipeline of leaders so we never have any issue with succession and 
That way we can continue to remain as a legacy firm. And, you know, I'd love for our firm to continue to be the go-to for companies looking for a trusted advisor and also for talented candidates looking for a place where they can fulfill their highest potential but still have a meaningful personal life where it's not sacrificing their personal life to achieve a career. So that's really what I, I hope for for the firm. And, and I, I'm very fortunate because I am surrounded by just really wonderful partners focused on the same vision. And again, very forward-looking and focused on taking care of our people because ultimately it's our people that makes us successful because we can't serve our clients if we didn't have motivated, engaged employees. Wow. I, I see why you're in the succession line there. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell I'm very passionate? <laughs> yes, yes, just a little bit. It shows. It shows. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. There's so many things I'd like to talk about there, but I know you're running out of time. So let me get to the, the final questions here. First of all, and usually the easiest for our guest, what has been your proudest moment? My proudest moment. So I would think it would have been an easy answer, but I have so many <laughs> that um, they kind of competing. Um, and obviously, the latest one is being elected managing partner. That just is so humbling for me. And, and, and sometimes I have to pinch myself to see if I'm dreaming. But some of the highlights, obviously, you know, having my kids, obviously, always something very, very special. Being an American citizen, like getting my American citizenship in 2009 was really very special for me because I came to the U.S. in 1992 and I didn't get my citizenship until 2009. So that was, I can't even explain it. You know, that, that, that just meant the world to me. So very proud. I was very proud. Waving yeah. that flag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those of us that were born here don't realize how big an accomplishment that is sometimes. And my wife was born in Japan. And so, oh, okay. Uh, yes, and so she she got her citizenship maybe ten years ago, and yeah. uh, it is it's not as simple as filling out a little application. <laughs> oh no, no, and then that, no, sometimes it, when it when I hear people say, "Oh, you know, it's so easy," I'm like, "It's really not," because no. I went through <laughs> I went through that whole process. But yeah, you know, speaking of Japan, I would love to meet your wife at some point because before coming to the U.S., part of the program that got me to the U.S. was actually studying in Japan for a year and a half. So oh, I'd love to find out where, what part of Japan she's from. So. Sure. Yeah, we'll have to have to talk about that. Well, yeah. tell us about a mistake you've made and, and what you learned from it, of course. And frankly, the bigger, the better. Don't hold back. <laughs> yeah. I thought about this too, and I was kind of thinking, okay, what, what is the one, one thing that is, has left an indelible kind of impression on me? <laughs> and I consider it a big mistake, but, but it, it's one where when I was still in law school and it was in the middle of busy season, and I'm guessing now that it might have been in May, April or May, it was my final exam, and it was actually part take-home exam and then part on-site exam. So up to this point, up to this point when, when this mistake happened, I was getting away, you know, with cramming, right? It's sort of like, because in law school, you have one final. And so you can, as long as you kept up with the readings, you did your outline. I always did well, you know, in, in the exams and everything. This was actually a tax planning course too. It's like a, a tax course, which I thought, you know, I got that. But the take-home was pretty complex, 
And the problem was I was in the middle of business season. And so I was procrastinating. I was holding off and saying to myself, I have time, I have time. And so I gave myself the day of the exam because I had, I had outlined the take-home portion of it. I felt like I, I was good there. I just needed what I thought was maybe four hours, you know, to kind of finalize it. And then that helps me kind of study for the exam too. Well, long story short, one of my audit jobs, we had a big issue and it needed to be released that day because the bank was looking for it, mm. but it needed my attention. So my four hours that I thought I can work on my take-home evaporated. And my study time that I was, because I was going to take that day off, my study time that I allotted evaporated as well. And so I took that test and thought I flunked it because I literally essentially just put it all together quickly, not, not the way that I would have ordinarily put it together. And I had to leave the exam. After, after the exam, my husband picked me up because we were driving to Florida for a vacation and I literally was in tears because it was like my procrastination caught up with me. You know, this was the one time I couldn't get away with it. And I was like, I'm going to get a D. I'm going to fail it. And of course, I wouldn't know the result until weeks later. <laughs> I did end up getting a B plus. I don't know how, but I did. But I tell you, I learned from it. I still find myself all the time, especially because I'm so busy, not giving myself that buffer but I learned to give myself a buffer because life happens, best intentions. And I always underestimate how long it takes to do things, right? <laughs> I don't know if you do that, but always underestimate it. So it's always like I'm always running late. So I'm still working at it. I'm still a work in progress, continuous learning. But it's really, I le- what I learned from it is I need to have a buffer and not assume everything is going to go as planned. But I would consider that one that I will never forget that feeling, that sinking feeling that there was nothing I can do about it. It was too late. Wow. Thank you for sharing that because I know we have a large number of students, particularly later in college, junior, senior level, that listen in from some of the comments I get. And so I I know that story is very appropriate for them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it resonates with people because, I mean, I tell my my son that now. My oldest one tends to procrastinate because he gets away with it, you know. (laughs) And I said to him, either you're going to have that one moment where you're going to just find out it's not worth it. (laughs) Well, final question, and then we'll close it out. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I would say the best piece of advice that I've received is for me to clarify my values. And this actually happened right around the time that my second son was born. This was 09, which was my banner year. And the reason why I consider that the best advice, throughout my life, I get busy, I do things, and you kind of just do the next thing that needs to get done. But when this advice was put to me, it was in the context of if you clarify your values and you put it on paper and you know what they are, when you are in a situation where there is a conflict or maybe you're being asked to do something that is contrary to those values, when you don't have your values clarified, it just feels like this feeling in your stomach. It's a gut feeling that you may not be able to describe but you go with it anyway, right? Because in the moment you're being pressured or you're, you're being asked to do something. But if you have your values clarified, I've found 
it's easier to say no. It's easier to say yes for the things that are aligned with that. And so that was really the best advice for me. And I'm, I'm still evolving, right? Your values over time change and you're younger. Maybe money, you know, is one of those things that you define. I mean, for me now, it's time. It's time with my family. It's leaving a legacy. It's making a difference in people's lives. So over time, your values might change. But if you have them down and clarified, I think it will serve you well. And so it served me well. So that's, that's what I would consider the best advice. Mm, that is good advice. We all need to hear that every once in a while because you're right. It's, it's easy to get so busy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> And we yes. forget what's important. That's true. Well, the, the, when, when the advice was given to me, this person actually said to me, you don't want to get to, and it was Wayne, fittingly enough, he said, you don't want to get to in your 60s and look back and realize that you were really not, that the things that you did wasn't leading you to where you really want to be. Just begin with the end in mind, so to speak. That is a great point. Well, thank you so much again for sharing with us. I know we need to wrap this up. I, I really appreciate your time. I know it's... No, this was fun. This is fun. Thank you for having me. No problem. Well, for our audience, this has been another episode of Life at Accounting, the Where Accounts Go podcast. If you haven't yet visited our home website, please do so. You can find links to all the certifications available for accountants, including the CPA, of course, as well as all the show notes for each and every episode, including this one with Sheila. That website is www.whereaccountantsgo. That's whereaccountantsgo.com. And on that note, Sheila, any final thoughts or words of wisdom for the listening audience? Just that they should consider getting their CPA license. It will pay for itself and it will they will never regret it. That is great advice, definitely. Well, thank you again to the audience for joining us. Have a great week. There's more to come.